Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. The Drinking Hour on Food FM. You're listening to The Drinking Hour with David Kermode in association with the International Wine and Spirit Competition, using the best in the world to judge the best in the world. Hello and welcome to The Drinking Hour here on Food FM with me, David Kermode. This week, desert wine, not Dessert wine, uh, but wine made in the driest place on earth, Chile's Atacama Desert, will celebrate 10 years of Tara with its creator, Alejandro Gales, and ask him why it's worth the challenge. Plus, as ever, your medal-winning wines from the IWSC Hall of Fame. The Drinking Hour on Food FM. Growing vines in the driest place on earth, the Atacama Desert, parts of which have never, ever recorded a single drop of rain, uh, might sound at face value like uh, well, a foolish thing to do, frankly. Uh, yet the wines of Tara from the uh, Chilean winery Vino Ventisquero have won plenty of critical acclaim with the project now celebrating its 10th birthday. There's Chardonnay. Pinot Noir, Viognier, and now also a Sauvignon Blanc as well. And a sparkling traditional method could perhaps be in the pipeline. We'll try and tease that out. Uh, it's all made possible by limestone soil, uh, a relative rarity in Chile, and fresh, pure water from the Andes, uh, plus a bit of coastal influence from the Pacific as well. Uh, the resulting wines have freshness and scintillating salinity. Let's uh, find out why. Uh, it's a remarkable project. Uh, the winemaker is Alejandro Galaz, and uh, he joins me now um, from Chile. Uh, welcome to the drinking hour, Alejandro. Hello, David. Hello, everyone. Very happy to be here, having a nice conversation with all of you regarding to these uh, um, Atacama Desert wines. Yeah, well, we're excited to talk to you. So, as I mentioned in the introduction, uh, growing vines in the driest place on earth does sound um, eccentric. Um, tell us why uh, you and the team at uh, Ventisquero wanted to do this. Well, actually, David, uh, I think that the, maybe the word uh, more than eccentric, uh, that actually it is, I think uh, it's more to moving uh, out of the comfort zone. You know that winemakers always are, are, are moving, searching for, for new things. Uh, and, and I think that um, uh, or I think every winemaker knows that uh, extreme places always will produce extreme wines. And um, when we knew that the owner of the company had uh, a place in the Atacama Desert where he used to grow olive trees, uh, we understood that um, as viticulturists and winemakers, wine growers, every place uh, in the planet that has uh, olive trees normally um, has a very good potential for wines, uh, for vineyards. So uh, we decided to go there to explore and have a look if it was possible to have in this extreme place on Earth, the driest place on Earth, the Atacama Desert, um, maybe a chance to grow up vineyards. And for those who are listening who haven't been there, um, I have been there, actually. I went as a tourist uh, about 15 years ago. I went to San Pedro de Atacama, which is like a, a backpacker's kind of crossroads. It's a wonderful little town, uh, but it's extraordinary because it's uh, really hot during the day and freezing cold. You stand around a fire at night. Um, it's a lovely place. I think San Pedro is some way away from where you are growing these vines. But tell us about um, the Atacama. 
Well, um, actually, yes. San Pedro is much more northern than, uh, compared with the area where we are and much more close to the Andes Mountains. That means that, as you said, the difference uh, of temperature between night and day is huge. You can reach 35, 40, 43, 44 Celsius degrees at the shadow sometimes of the day. And then the temperature drops dramatically um, till maybe uh, 5 or, 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 or 6 Celsius degrees at night. In the place that we are, uh, that we are much more close to the Pacific Ocean, where we have that influence, is the Pacific Ocean the one that regulates the temperature? So actually, um, maximum temperatures during the day, during the ripening season, um, reaches maybe 23, 24 Celsius degrees. And at night, of course, um, is not as low as in San Pedro, but um, um, easily can drop uh, till 10 Celsius degrees. So it's a place that actually we discovered just when we uh, got into uh, that specific area that is not uh, actually good for uh, warm climate varieties as, I don't know, Mediterranean varieties, Grenache, Sansor, uh, Carignan, or even uh, Carmenere or Cabernet Sauvignon. That was a definitely a place for cool climate varieties as Sauvignon Blanc, Chardonnay, and Pinots. Uh, although it's obviously incredibly dry, you have a source of water, beautiful, fresh, pure water coming from the Andes, don't you? Uh, exactly. Uh, that's part of the miracle of the place, because uh, even if we are close to the sea, to the Pacific Ocean, and it's a cool climate area, it's a kind of a cool desert. It's desert because there's no water available um, for most of the surface. But uh, as you said, we are very close to an important source, source of water that is the Wasco River. And the Wasco River comes with pure water from the Andes Mountains. The Andes Mountains are more or less 150 kilometers, 120 kilometers to um, the east. Um, and uh, that water coming from glaciers, uh, very on the top of the mountains, reaching uh, 5,000 meters over the sea level, comes with pure water, this, this Wask River, that uh, is the one that we use for irrigating, irrigation for these vineyards. Okay, so you, you are draining a little bit of the river off in channels, are you? Yeah, uh, we have a, a reservoir uh, there uh, to take out the water from the, the river that actually, even if it's a desert, uh, the, uh, the glacier that it's at that size, uh, at that, uh, in the Andes Mountains, it's huge. So even in, well, I, I can't say in the driest uh, years because it's always dry, but always the river, it's full of water. Um, I think that the, most of the amazing prawns that I tasted are from there. So uh, I, uh, I make you the invitation right now, David, if you have the possibility in the future to go there, we'll have nice prawns from the Wasco River with nice Chardonnay from there. Um, so, yeah, we use uh, part of that water to irrigate the vineyards um, using a reservoir. Um, that is providing um, the water uh, during um, uh, the moment that the vines require. Well, Chardonnay and prawns sounds very nice. Um, but uh, let me, uh, talking of prawns, talk about the sea as well, because um, you have this other crucial influence, as you said, um, the Pacific Ocean. And you have the presumably the uh, impact of the Humboldt uh, current as well, don't you? Well, Chile, you know that um, all we are very long and narrow. Um, we are a very healthy country because of these natural barriers, geographical barriers that uh, isolate the country from disease. We don't have to spray chemical products. Uh, even in the central area, in the central wine region of Chile, uh, we don't have to spray much products because uh, we are very healthy, isolated from, from disease and pests. Uh, 
From the north, we have this, the driest place on earth, the Atacama Desert. To the south, we have all the glaciers and the rainforest. To the east, the huge Andes range of mountains, and to the west, the Pacific Ocean. Um, so yes, um, uh, the Pacific Ocean is just, um, we have two vineyards in two close areas. One is called Longomilla and the other one is called Nicolasa. One is about 30 kilometers from the, from the sea and the other one 20 kilometers from the sea. And um, there's a second miracle besides, um, apart from the Wasco River, that is a phenomenon that happens twice a day early in the morning between 9 and 10 o'clock, and then in the afternoon, nearly uh, 6 p.m., and it's called the Kamanchaka. The Kamanchaka is a very thick fog that produces in the Pacific Ocean because of the evaporation and because of the change of temperature, comes through uh, the wind of the area, through the inland, and pass through the crops uh, uh, that are in the uh, Wasco Valley. That's the moment very important for the vine because um, for some minutes, around 45, 50 minutes, that uh, this thick fog is passing through, uh, the leaves can get this humidity, a little bit of humidity in the environment uh, in this kind of um, very dry condition. So it's a wonderful miracle uh, that, again, nature is giving up um, for this uh, vineyard located in this extreme place. So presumably you have, uh, because of that uh, cooling fog, uh, you have a, a significant uh, diurnal range, um, the, the range between the top temperature and, and the bottom temperature, if you like, uh, on a given day. Um, in those two moments, yes. Uh, but particularly in the, in, in the case of the highest temperatures, 23, 24 Celsius degrees is not that high. I mean, maybe it is for London, uh, except for this uh, summertime that you just had uh, with 30-something Celsius degrees. That is very high for you. But normally, for cool climate varieties, to have during ripening season, during the day, 23, 24 Celsius degrees is optimum. Um, 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 accept the plant accepts that temperature perfectly and uh, provides uh, the energy to ripe the grapes. Actually, those grapes are ripening between uh, the second and third um, uh, week of February and the um, months of March. So it's an early picking uh, for that uh, vineyard. Mm, yeah, you're right. I mean, 23 is not that high, even for London. So uh, it, it is actually... Um, remarkably uh, benign for, you know, uh, the driest uh, place on earth, uh, really. Tell us about the soils as well. I, I nodded to uh, limestone in the introduction because you, you have that there, don't you? Yeah, you mentioned in the beginning uh, about this uh, rare kind of condition uh, in the soil. Um, I can tell you for sure that in general, uh, more than 80% of uh, um Chile is the wine ridges, um, uh, mainly in the central area of Chile. Uh, it's granite and clay. That's what uh, we have in our country. And that's kind of um, uh, the, the, the reason is because we have, uh, you know, these two range of mountains, the one that is uh, uh, the Andes, uh, the highest uh, or biggest uh, kind of range of mountains in the planet, or one of those. And then to the coastal area uh, of Chile, before arriving to the, the really coast next to the Pacific Ocean, we have another very low range of mountains called the coastal range. That is 100% granite. So the intermediate part in those two ranges of mountains, it's normally clay, some areas with sand, depending if you have uh, rivers or not. But we don't have actually uh, many spots with limestone soils. There's a little bit in Elki, um, a little bit in the central area, in the, in the coastal uh, part of Chile, and where we are in the very north of Chile. Uh, and you know, David, that uh, uh, limestone soils uh, around the planet, we can, I don't know, in the old world, you know, Burgundy, uh, other areas in France, uh, some areas in the south of Italy, 
um, Spain that provides these kind of soils also provides very, very nice kind of, of wines. Uh, so when we arrived there and uh, we saw in the pit this kind of um, um, white powder in between the stones, we were like uh, looking at each other with the, the other part of the team uh, and thinking, is it possible to have here limestone soils? Let's make the, the classical kind of uh, technique to, uh, to, to, to realize if it's uh, or not. So we went to buy, say, a bag of lemons, took out the juice and threw it to uh, the soil. You know that the reaction be between a, a soft acid like the citric acid with the uh, calcium, with the calcarium calcium, will produce bubbles. So we were waiting if those bubbles were going to be there, and they were. So um, actually, uh, it was a very nice new to, to understand that we were in presence of something absolutely um, different from what we were uh, uh, having in the central area. What we didn't saw at that moment, we didn't see at that moment, was uh, an important amount of salt that there was uh, in the soil. You know, this, this area, millions of years ago, was under the Pacific Ocean. So besides all the powder coming, the, the langstone soil powder coming from the fossils of the shells, um, you have a lot of salt in between the stones uh, and the clay and, and the sand. Um, and, and that was something that we didn't uh, realize how it was going to impact in the growing of, of, of this vine that actually was very, very difficult to catch. I was going to say, wouldn't salt in a large quantity, wouldn't that basically kill a vine? You know, um, after making a deep research, because uh, I have to tell you, the second year after the plantation, all the vines died. We had to replant there, and in that moment was when we realized that there was something in the soil that we didn't we, we didn't get. Uh, so, making the analysis, we uh, realized we understood that there was around ten times salt in the soil that water vine can support, um, and the, the vines were there; they were alive. And the fruit was exceptionally good. So, uh, as I say, normally um, nature opens the way. Uh, the vines were there; some of them were alive. So we started a whole um, investigation to try to use rootstocks uh, that they were uh, accepting a little bit more the salt, uh, because uh, you know uh, the problem is that the salt goes around the roots and they struggle. Uh, they uh, don't allow the roots to take all the nutrients and the water from the soil because the salt is, is so dense there. So what we did was uh, we, we had some consultants, viticulture consultants uh, um, that aware of us that making long irrigations of about 18, 20, 22 hours will move uh, the um, um, surrounding root salt to the place in between the rows. And that will allow for a time, for a period of around eight to nine days for the roots to take all the nutrients and all the water from the soil and keep going uh, uh, with, with their lives. Uh, that was something challenging uh, and difficult to discover, but finally... Uh, we reached what we were looking for that was a, a better condition for them. Uh, if all your vines died, um, it's, it's fair to say um, it, it can't have been um, an encouraging start to the project. I mean, it, it must have been quite dispiriting at that point in time, uh, to say the least. As I said in the beginning, uh, we, are, we, are, we are a team between the viticulturists and, and, and the winemakers that uh, are always moving and, uh, and we try not to be in the comfort zone. 
so that um, uh, we um, continue with the project uh, moving um, to other kind of uh, uh, planting and and seeing if this new rootstock will change the condition. Actually, they didn't do uh, that much because uh, after a whole uh, investigation, the best uh, um, the best condition or the best uh, development was without rootstock. You know that vines are very rustic plants. Uh, so we discovered that uh, the rootstock weren't uh, um, um, like uh, uh, being developed for this amount of salt. But the, um, the plant with the vine without the rootstock did the best job. Now we've been discovering new, after 10 years, new uh, rootstock that are better than the ones before. And we are making some trials with very good results. That's interesting because one of the very distinctive, I mean, uh, pretty much unique uh, qualities of, of Chile, of course, is that uh, the vines in Chile um, are generally um, un- ungrafted because you don't have phylloxera because of that um, barrier you described of the of the Pacific Ocean on the one side and the Andes mountain range. You have this um, extraordinary thing. You're, you are free of, um, of phylloxera uh, in Chile. So actually, um, grafting is not something that is, is uh, as, as anything like as commonplace in Chile as it would be elsewhere, is it? Exactly. I'm knocking the table right now because I don't want to have phylloxera in the future. Um, actually, that's uh, one of the uh, reasons why we don't have, as you mentioned, these uh, national geographical barriers. We don't have phylloxera, um, and uh, um, I think that uh, that condition has been always uh, um, uh, giving a, a special way of thinking for winemakers and viticulturists. Um, um, I don't know if in the future it's going to arrive, but uh, uh, till now, um, that's the condition. That's what we have here in Chile, and uh, and I think that the the only reason why uh, some vineyards in Chile has has been developing um, blocks and, and plantings with uh, with rootstock is just to regulate the production with, with those rootstock that have that has um, bigger roots to develop the root system deeper in the soil and have have a better condition uh, for the vines uh, during their lives. But there's no other reason why using those rootstock. Just for those listening who um, enjoy wine uh, but are not necessarily um, viticulture experts, uh, just explain, uh, if you could, why an ungrafted vine is considered to be a rather lovely thing. It's much more pure, the expression of the terroir, yeah, I mean, uh, not only the job, the, the work of uh, 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 the hands of the of the viticulturist or the winemaker, but um, the relationship between the soil and the vine, it's different. Uh, maybe much more pure expression of that soil related with the environment, with the atmospheric condition, uh, with the fruit that is going to produce afterwards. And then that purity is what you have in your glass. Yeah, I mean, you can certainly, I think anyway, uh, you can you can taste it. So uh, that's uh, really interesting. Thank you. Uh, going back to uh, the Atacama, um, how did you choose the varieties that you felt were going to be best suited uh, you were obviously looking for cool climate grape varieties. Um, you, you've said that already, but there are a few of those. So how did you choose uh, what you were going to uh, trial in the Atacama? Well, um, as I said on the beginning, um, at the first time when we were going there, uh, we were thinking in this uh, driest place on earth, uh, very warm. So um uh, Grenache, Cabernet, Petit Verdot, Cabernet were the first variety that we thought about. Uh, but then when we arrived there in the middle of the Kamenchaka, uh, we uh, realized that uh, that wasn't a place for warm climate varieties. 
we make a um, climate study. And uh, what we decided to plant was uh, white varieties, uh, Chardonnay, Sauvignon Blanc, uh, a little bit of Viognier, uh, and then cool climate uh, red. Um, you know that, uh, of course, Pinot Noir is one of those. And then we have a plantation also of Syrah, uh, and the variety Syrah can also be very versatile depending on the climate that uh, uh, is planting. But then, beside the climate, um, the decision was around the, um, uh, the limestone soil. Burgundy is a very good example of um, uh, um, a nice glass of wine coming from, from fruit planted in limestone soil. Um, then you have the northern Rhone, uh, uh, south, some part of the southern Rhone as well with the Syrah, with some limestone soil that give fantastic Syrah. Um, and then, of course, uh, the Viognier was the kind of um, jump into the pool because, uh, uh, well, uh, except of uh, uh, some areas in the northern Rome where the Viognier is planted with, with uh, is blended with Syrah alone, uh, we thought that the, we didn't have many um, information about that. But we knew that um, a Viognier is a uh, variety that works very well with a lot of light. And, um, and one of the uh, characteristics of the Atacama Desert as one of the places on Earth with m uh, the limpid, most limpid skies uh, in the planet was, is the amount of light. There's a lot of light over there. Except of the Kamanchaka phenomenon, that is happening, as I said, twice a day, uh, the rest are limpid, clean, blue skies uh, that really um, are influencing how the grapes ripe. So that's why we decided to plant just 10 rows of this special Viognier. Viognier is not a variety that is known for acidity. Um, does the, the terroir there... Um, assist Viognier in having some sort of um, acidic definition because there's certainly uh, when I taste the wines whether it's a phenolic acid sort of uh, perception of acidity or whether it's actually acidity I'm not so sure but the, your Viognier is not short of acidity yeah the time uh, that we have be between setting and harvesting is very short compared with other uh, areas in Chile or uh, if we compare uh, in wine regions around the planet. So when you have a short time between setting and harvesting, the amount of acid that you are going to decrease instead of the increase of the sugar during ripening season, it's, it's much smaller compared with uh, those other areas, those other wine regions. So uh, when we harvest uh, in the beginning of March, at uh, the end of February, we keep a lot of malic acid. That is the one that gives the freshness, the vibrancy, the nervous character in the palate. That's why uh, our Viognier is like that. And you can taste actually the Chardonnay and the Sauvignon Blanc. pH is nearly almost uh, similar to a, a sparkling wine. Uh, why you don't feel that very high acidity? Because the structure that the limestone soil gives to the palate makes the balance even with a very dry wine. The limestone soil first is going to give that mineral character in the nose, like, a, like smelling a white stone, you know? Uh, then when you um, introduce the wine in your palate, you feel that tightness, that tension, that nice structure that gives this mouth-watering feeling com uh, complemented with the acidity of, of the wine. And then on the back part of the aftertaste, you feel this um, special salinity uh, coming from, from these salty soils. So having, I think, uh, maybe other one can uh, uh, talk a little bit more about this, but for me, it's very special and rare to find a wine that is both at the same time, mineral and salty at the same time. 
Um, when you uh, taste these wines, match it with uh, food, it's really a fantastic experience because uh, the salinity and, and the minerality uh, really complements food and makes the wine or make the consumer to uh, ask for another glass of wine and another piece of dish, if you want it. <laughs> uh, the wines are indeed fantastic uh, food wines. Um, that salinity that's so pronounced but um, is, is very much in check, is very balanced, um, do you have to sort of adjust that? Is it just naturally there? Because it seems to be just dialed in at the right level, that salinity. We don't do anything that uh, uh, change uh, the character of, of the wine. And, and in this case, that was part of the discussion with my partner, with Felipe Toso, the chief winemaker that uh, is uh, the other winemaker uh, that uh, we are making the wine together. Um, and we share decisions and um, when the philosophy, the philosophy started with this project, um, when after tasting, uh, after four years uh, that we planted and we tasted the first um, wines, we decided that the, the character and the identity and personality of the place was so strong that actually um, the... The idea of the winemaker, the winemaker was going to be in the backstage. The less intervention possible as possible so that the most, the most of the character of the wine uh, could be available for the final consumer in the glass. That's why we don't adjust the salt or the mineral, minerality or whatever. Um, Besides giving these long irrigations to, to, to keep going the, the vine uh, in terms of life. But the character of the wine is the character of, of the Atacama Desert, is the character of an extreme place. And from the beginning of the project, that was the idea to give a final consumer um, a, the character of an extreme place. So why to change that? There's a minimal intervention wines, David, where the winemaker is in the backstage and uh, we don't use any uh, enzymes or uh, commercial yeast. Um, this is all native yeast. Uh, we press the, the whole bunch. We press uh, the, the, the grapes with our feet. And, uh, and it's much more a kind of a, could be a natural wine, but we add a little bit of sulfur be before bottling. Um, the rest is just uh, the desert. Did you say you use foot treading like they do in the Lagares in, in Port? Yeah, uh, like in the Lagares in, in Spain. Um, um, actually, um, we are thinking now because we have grown a little bit. Um, uh, I mean, we are making maybe 5,000 bottles of each now. Uh, so uh, probably we'll have to buy a basket press uh, for the next um, um, process uh, during the 2023 vintage and on. Um, but that's how we, we, we have been making the wine, very artisan, handmade kind of uh, uh, processing. Mm. Yeah, and it's very much evident in your most recent wine, which is a Sauvignon Blanc, um, that uh, I was actually tasting coincidentally only this morning at a Pro Chile um, event. Uh, it's on fine form. Um, it's actually quite um, cloudy. It's very distinctively Sauvignon Blanc, but it's also very different, isn't it? Isn't it? There it is, because, well, actually, all, all the whites, the Sauvignon Blanc, the Chardonnay and the Viognier, we don't filter them. That's why uh, when you see the wine in the glass, it's hazy, it's cloudy, uh, because uh, the wines are with all the fine leaves in between to really feel the character of, the, of this place in your palate. Um, but definitely the Sauvignon Blanc is something completely different of what the rest of the country is producing, where you can get this, all this tropical, citric kind of uh, character 
typical from from uh, Sauvignon Blanc. Uh, but when they place, uh, in this case, the soil is limestone, um, you get that minerality uh, in in the nose and in the palate uh, of this wine. What we did, David, was after we 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 research, we make investigation about the soils. We started to see in those two sites, in those two areas, Nicolás and Longomina, where were the most higher amounts contents of um, uh, calcium, calcarium, limestone soil. So we discovered that there was a little corner, about an hectare, uh, that where was the highest uh, uh, amount of uh, uh, limestone soil. When we saw uh, on the top, it was planted with Sauvignon Blanc. So why don't... Uh, uh, and that Sauvignon Blanc it was going to uh, other two projects of the company, uh, that it's a Carrefour brand and the Ventisquero Gray range. Uh, so why don't we take out this part of the vineyard, verificate it by separate, and compare with the other two Sauvignon Blanc and see if it does really a difference so that we can include this part of the vineyard of the Sauvignon Blanc into the Tara project. And it did completely. Uh, it was much more structured. There was much more linear, much more acid and, and, and stony kind of character. Really, uh, really uh, in a higher position, if you want it like that, compared with the other two Sauvignon Blancs. Uh, and that's why we decided to include it in the in, in the tariff rate. And it's not my favourite grape variety, uh, but it's a delicious wine. It really is um, very, very um, distinctive. So uh, what else might you experiment with in terms of grape varieties? Because we've already got uh, Chardonnay, Pinot Noir, uh, Viognier, uh, Syrah, uh, Sauvignon Blanc. Uh, what's next? We made a trial, David, a um, um, couple of years ago. I think that um, three years ago, uh, or four, four years ago, four years ago, and we planted Grenache and Cap Franc. Uh, last 2022 vintage, we had uh, the first uh, like um, results. We have a little bit of uh, of those grapes on 2021 with not uh, uh, a very high definition, but on 22, we had a little bit more, and the results are amazing. Next week, we have a meeting where we are going to discuss about, <laughs> with the commercial and the marketing area, uh, what about if we, if, if, if we include them in the future in, uh, in the Tara project. Uh, but it's not all resolved Still, so I think that is a uh, uh, news in movement. So um, uh, I hope that uh, those two will be part of the Tara project because they are fantastic wines as well. Uh, and maybe I have good news for you uh, uh, in the future. Mm. Well, Cabernet Franc is probably my favourite grape variety. So that's very, very exciting. And um, Grenache uh, too, potentially. Um, another really? thing I alluded to at the beginning uh, was um, Chardonnay and Pinot Noir, um, because uh, they, they obviously are two of the three uh, champagne grapes, um, and um, you need very high acidity for good quality traditional method sparkling wine. Um, you have very high acidity. Um, you have that uh, mineral depth and complexity, that salinity. Um, you have Chardonnay, you have Pinot Noir. Surely you have the makings of a really knockout traditional method sparkling wine. Um, that's another um, trial that actually we have been making since about uh, six years um, till now. Um, and we have been harvesting early in the season Chardonnay grapes um, to make a base wine for a, a, a possible sparkling uh, um, from, from that variety coming from the north of Chile um, to be included in the Terra project as well. Uh, again, that's uh, the third project that we have to discuss next week. But uh, the character of that base wine, the acidity uh, and the, um, 
job that the Leeds have uh, uh, made during these last years is exceptionally good. Uh, I think that that, uh, uh, we are in presence of an enormous potential for that uh, kind of uh, uh, traditional method sparkling wine and for sure that will be included in the the Tanner project. Um, uh, We have not that much, maybe... uh, 1,500, 2,000 bottles, uh, not more than that. But from uh, with a um, feedback of more than five years of um, base wines, uh, that is very useful. You know, in Champagne, they have all wines to keep the character of the uh, Chateau uh, in time. So that's what we thought about years ago, to have all wines to, to keep going with the character of uh, of uh, the product in time. And I think that we've made it, and now it's moment to create that bubbles, those bubbles. Oh, well, I look forward to that. It's um, uh, very exciting, uh, potentially. Um, your wines have been very well received, uh, critically. Um, it, you kind of, are you convinced uh, yet that this has been a, a success, this project? Definitely. Um the um, third, the the third year that we were providing commercially uh, these wines, we went into the five best restaurants in the world at that moment. We went with um, with Tara inside the um, cellar of the Rocker Brothers, um, Osteria Franciscana in Modena. Mugaritz in Spain as well, um, Noma in uh, Copenhagen, and Dom in Sao Paulo. Because uh, even we didn't have any history or we didn't have any um, um, remarks from wine writers and wine journalists, the wine were so special and exceptionally good that when we tasted with the with those chefs and sommeliers, uh, they went included. They go included in, immediately in the wine lists. Even those wine lists accepted just old world wines, Spanish, uh, French, uh, and Italian. So that's I think that is part of the answer of your question, and uh, that is keeping that is going till nowadays, where um, we export. Um, to very important uh, importers, and and we we are in the the wine list of very important places around the planet with these Tara Project wines. Uh, Chile is sometimes described um, as um, a little bit conventional, um, dare I say it, a bit boring, a bit predictable for wine. Um, very good quality, great value, a little bit safe. Um, is this a project that? sends a signal, do you think, that things have changed in Chile? Um, when you ask me this, David, I can't um, um, not think in a um, comment that um, Tim Atkin, the famous wine writer uh, from the UK, made uh, years ago from Chile. When another journalist asked about Chile, uh, what he, the his thoughts about Chile, he said that Chile was like a Volvo car. What is that about, said the journalist? Well, it's very safe, but it's boring. (laughs) That was around uh, already 15 years ago. And um, since that day, we moved uh, the way of thinking. Um, Winemakers were really touched by that comment. And we realized that we were in a position that um, if the ones that are are planting, if the one that we are making wine didn't have a change, uh, uh, the future for the Chilean wine industry wasn't going to be good because of that. Safe but boring and in in a scale with with big, long competition around the world, um, it seems that there uh, was a um, moment to think about uh, how we, we could uh, uh, see the, the, the future for the wine Chilean industry. And it started a change 
<clears throat> and today there are more than I, I can tell you 150 little wineries, little producers producing very nice wines, um, uh, completely different of uh, what uh, we had in the past. And I think that that's absolutely not boring and uh, completely um, uh, giving a, a completely different option for final consumers from the uh, very old patrimonic uh, vineyards in the central south of Chile, in the Bio Bio and Itata region where you have Sanso, uh, um, Muscat, uh, Carignans as well, Pais, uh, moving to this project uh, that uh, uh, that the one that we have in the north of Chile. Uh, I have to remember you that um, when we started this project that was planting on the winter of 2007, the map of wines of Chile uh, finished in Elqui. So when we planted there, wines of Chile had to take all those maps and put it in the trash and create new ones. This is a place that is located 300 kilometers northern Elqui, 800 kilometers northern Santiago, the capital. So we move the boundaries. And um, just because we are talking uh, of this, about moving the, wine, the boundaries, is that um, we are always moving and, and uh, searching for new things. Uh, and I, I have to tell you that um, now we have moved the boundaries of the south of Chile and we, are, we have a little vineyard in the Chilean Patagonia. That means 2,000 kilometers southern Santiago, the capital, um, in the Chile Chico area. That is the southern, for you to know, that's the southern vineyard on earth. What? Again, Pinot Noir, Chardonnay, and Sauvignon Blanc. Well, I can't wait to taste those wines at some point. It's great to hear uh, that you're uh, not just pushing the boundaries, but um, moving the boundaries, literally causing them to have to redraw the maps. Um, it's uh, a fantastic uh, and very exciting selection of wines. I I've always really enjoyed uh, tasting them. It's unsurprising to me that you're in uh, some of the top restaurants with these wines. They're uh, innovative and, and delicious. So I would highly recommend them to anyone listening. Uh, Alejandro, it's been a, a huge pleasure talking to you. Um, thank you so much for joining us on The Drinking Hour and telling us all about uh, Tara in the Atacama. My pleasure, David. Uh, for me, it's, uh, it's uh, a happiness to really have the opportunity to tell final consumers that at the end of the world, in a corner of South America, isolated by these national geographical barriers, you have a country that completely um, uh, opposite of boring, is enthusiastic, innovative, and uh, can offer the final consumers products, wines, uh, like this one, coming from the driest place on earth, the Atacama Desert. Very nice to have this conversation with you. The Drinking Hour on Food FM. You're listening to The Drinking Hour with David Kermode in association with the International Wine and Spirit Competition, using the best in the world to judge the best in the world. It's time to round off as ever with some medal winners from the IWSC Hall of Fame. Our theme this week is Chile, uh, unsurprisingly, and we start with a stonking success, a gin from Chilean Patagonia, uh, down south, uh, Alan. Alejandro was uh, referencing this particular region. It scored a gold medal, 95 points, and also scooped a bronze in the gin and tonic category too. From the Tepaluma Patagonian Distillery, Tepaluma Gin, a London dry. Here's what the panel had to say as they gave it a gold. An accomplished and bold nose with attractive cardamom, ripe citrus, juniper and pine. The full-bodied palate has wonderful concentration and texture with a smooth finish. Would make for a perfect gin and tonic, as indeed it did. Uh, to wine next, and a strong silver medal winner from the 2022 competition, judged back in May, Casas del Bosque Pequeñas Syrah 2020, 
from the Casablanca Valley. Among the judges here, Ali Cooper, MW, Chile expert, previous guest on The Drinking Hour. Emma Dawson, another master of wine, and also Matteo Montoni, a master sommelier. Here's what they had to say. Reminiscent of tapenade and salami. This is a complex wine with concentrated flavours, forest fruits, plus vegetal notes of menthol and eucalyptus, layered with smoky spices. Lingers on the finish. Uh, next, a wine from one of Chile's biggest, most successful wineries, Concha y Toro. Uh, Trio Reserva Merlot Carmenere Malbec 2021, a blend, obviously, from the Maule Valley. Uh, silver medal winner, an impressive 92 points. Uh, the panel said a lively, fresh wine with bright cherries, crushed violets and hints of sweet vanilla. A herbal bramble note adds an extra dimension, offers plenty of fresh acidity and chalky tannins. Next, from down south in Itata, Vigna Louis Felipe Edwards, Sanso, uh, that's C-I-N-S-O, it's a play obviously on the great variety Sanso, uh, 2021, uh, won a silver medal, 91 points. The judges, including Alistair again, and also Anna Sapangu, MW, said this. Vibrant red fruits of red cherries, plums, combined with floral aromas on the nose. A lovely wine with soft acidity, smooth tannins, and a rounded palate. And I was actually tasting that very wine uh, this morning at a Chilean event, and I can uh, absolutely... Uh, vouch for it. It's uh, fantastic. Salso from uh, uh, Louis Felipe Edwards, uh, silver medal winner. Here's another silver medal winner. Uh, this time uh, made for Asda, uh, La Corriente Sauvignon Blanc Blush 2021. It won 90 points. Uh, a rosé, obviously, from the uh, Col Chagua Valley. The judging panel said an aromatic nose of tomato, bush, nettle and gooseberry. Stunningly crisp with Brilliant minerality and mouth-watering acidity enjoys a perfectly sharp and lasting lemony finish. And I can assure you there's nothing lemony about this particular finish. Uh, that's it for another episode of The Drinking Hour. My thanks to Alejandro. I really recommend those Tara wines if you get a chance to try them. Uh, do join us next time. You can follow us at Food FM Radio on Instagram and Twitter. And I'm Mr Venusaurus on Instagram and Twitter. But for now... It's goodbye. The Drinking Hour on Food FM. You're listening to The Drinking Hour with David Kermode in association with the International Wine and Spirit Competition, using the best in the world to judge the best in the world.